This week, uh, Eli and I uh, watched uh, one of those documentaries about uh, a crime investigation. So something happens, they walk you through the sequence of events and the police investigation and who these people are. And the whole time you're asking a question, who done it? You know, and Eli really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I like that kind of genre. And, you know, when you get to the very end, all of the dots connect and you get to realize this was the guy who did it, or this is the woman who did it, and this is how they did it, and yada, yada, yada. And it, you get to go back, and they normally go through all the scenes they've shown you throughout, but now when you see those scenes, you have a better understanding of who everyone is and what had happened. And I share that because that's really what we've been doing for eight weeks now here at Journey. We call it typology. That's the, the technical term. But what we mean by it is, is throughout your Old Testament, God has had a pattern of, of doing things, of redeeming his people. And within these patterns, you start to learn that, that they're pointing to something that is yet to come. And then us as Christians, we get to study the life of Jesus, and we quickly realize that everything in the Old Testament was like little previews or little foreshadowings of what Jesus would be. That he would be the greatest expression of some of these Old Testament stories. So we looked at Noah's Ark. You know, God saved Noah and his families from floodwaters. He saved eight people then. But we know that there's a greater ark, an eternal ark, and his name is Jesus Christ. That in Jesus, we are saved for all of eternity from the waters of judgment. Uh, we looked at the story where the, God sent poisonous snakes to bite the Israelites. And, and God said, put a snake on a pole, and if people will look to the snake and have faith that I will heal them, they will be what? They'll be healed. And when you, when you read that story as a Christian, you can't help but say, man, the same way they looked at that snake on a pole is the same way we look at a Savior on a cross. Amen? And so we've been doing that here. We've been looking at Old Testament stories and narratives that take on a much greater significance in the New Testament once you understand Jesus. And today's going to be no different. There's story in, or a narrative in uh, Leviticus 16. It's the chapter of the Day of Atonement. It's a festival they celebrate every year. Every year in Judaism, they would have celebrated the Day of Atonement. And they would have done this year in and year in and year in and year in. Every year they would have celebrated it. I think it's the 10th day of the 7th month. Don't quote me on that. But they would celebrate it the same time every year. The same way we celebrate 4th of July and President's Day and Christmas. They would have had a festival about the Day of Atonement. And they would celebrate on the Day of Atonement the high priest going in to make payment or to atone for or to cover up the sins they had against God. And so every year they'd have a day where they knew that they had rebelled against God. They knew that there was things they had done that disappointed God. And they would send the priest in to offer a sacrifice, a life in exchange for their life. A payment in order to redeem them. Something to cover up their mistakes. And the priest would go in and, and offer that sacrifice. And they would celebrate God's forgiveness that day. But what would happen a year later? They would still have to do what again? They would do another day of atonement and another day of atonement, and another day of atonement. What we're going to realize today is God allowed that pattern to happen so that when Jesus dies on the cross and he goes into the heavenly tabernacle, not to make atonement, but with atonement in his hand already, he can eternally atone us before God. He can eternally redeem us. And there is no need for a day of atonement in Christianity. Amen? And we're going to see that today. We're going to see that atonement's done. Uh, that atonement has been finished, and it's no longer about finding a sacrifice. It's no longer about having a high priest intercede. We're going to realize today, if I do my job well, that every one of you in this room can have access to God because of Jesus' atoning work. 
You see that on the top of the back side of your bulletin. It's my, my short version of my sermon. Uh, it's what I hope when you're on the way to lunch today or you're at the bowling alley or like my kids like to ask, they like me to ask them questions and make sure they're paying attention. This would be my goal. My goal would be for you to leave our church today and say this. I have access to God because Jesus made it available by the atoning work he did. Now, we're going to expand all that. We're going to blow it up and look at it in great detail. But if you leave here today and you can say this, I have access to God because what Jesus accomplished for me, then I've done my job well. And that's what I hope to do this morning. So let's go to Romans chapter 9. The first point of the sermon is going to be looking at the Old Testament context. Then we'll circle around and look at the fulfillment of Jesus and we'll be done today. This is what you call a problem-solution sermon. Point one is going to give us a problem. Point two is going to give us a solution. And in the conclusion, I'm going to say, you better accept that solution, all right? And so let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. And when we read this, you're going to notice there's a setting, there's a scene, and then I'm going to show you some significance. There's going to be a setting, then there's going to be a scene, and then I'm going to show you some significance. Let's look at the setting of this chapter. Let's read 9, 1 through 6a. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's just the setting. I'm not going to work through all these phrases. Now, the first covenant, that meaning the Old Testament, God's first relationship or organized uh, arrangement with his people, also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy, holy place, It had a golden altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of the glory were above the Ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about all these things in detail right now. Now notice the very beginning of 6. I have to turn my pew Bible to. With these things prepared like this, and then I'm going to stop at that comma. So he tells us the first five verses in order to say, with these things prepared like this. Well, what is the like this? The like this is that when God brings them out of Exodus, he gives them a way to worship him. He tells them to set up a tabernacle. He tells Moses, I want you to build it this exact way. I want the bread to go here. I want the rooms to be this big. I want a curtain hung here. I want you to do it this way. And we learn in the Bible that the earthly tabernacle was a shadow or a copy, or it was made to, made to represent the heavenly tabernacle that exists with God right now. So God says, I want you to build one that's similar to what's in heaven, and here's the dimensions. And what we need to remember about this is, God was giving his people a way to worship him. He brings them out of Egypt. Today, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And now that I'm your God, we need to come up with a system, a ceremonial system, a law, and sacrifices, so that you can worship me. Because remember, I am Yahweh, and I brought you out of Egypt for my possession. And so the tabernacle is set up. And inside that tabernacle, you have one room, the first room, where any Levite would go in and do his daily priestly things, light the incense, put the bread in there, say his prayers. This is where uh, Zechariah was when the angel spoke to him in Matthew chapter 1 about uh, John the Baptist. But behind the first tent, the first room, was a second room. That was called the Most Holy, or the Holy of Holies. And they only went in that room how many days a year? Once. And that's what we're going to be studying. So he sets up, our setting today is the tabernacle worship. Now they go on to build the temple under Solomon, and then they build the temple after Babylonian exile, and it's a continuation. But he takes us back to that wilderness tabernacle. 
the first original plan for God's people to worship. And within that worship, now he's going to zoom in. So now we have the setting, we have this, the, the tents, and we have the Ark of the Covenant, and we have the mercy seat. Notice it mentions the mercy seat down there at, at the very beginning at verse 5. The mercy seat was that plate on top of the Ark of the Covenant where they would present the blood once a year for God's forgiveness. And so he, he sets you up. He's literally taking you out of, of St. Joseph. He's putting you in this tabernacle worship wilderness setting. And now he's going to zoom in on one day of the year. And that's what we're going to read now. Here's the scene of the Day of Atonement. Verse 6b. The priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. So that first room, all the priests would go into. Verse 7. But the high priest alone, notice the exclusivity, just the high priest, this would be Aaron and his lineage, alone enters the second room. And he does that, how many days? Only once a year. And he never goes in this room, never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the saints and, and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. So now we zoom in on a special day. It's the seventh month, the tenth day, and it's the day of atonement. And we're going to have a celebration and we're going to celebrate God's forgiveness. So what's going to happen today is our high priest is going to be going into the Holy of Holies. But guess what, guys? He's just as rotten sinner as you and I are. And I don't know about you, but... As a wretched sinner, I don't want to stand in the presence of a holy God and expect to live. Amen? And so he would offer a sacrifice first for himself. So he would go get the, the bull or the animal. They would slaughter it. He would take the blood into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle it around, uh, giving it to God and cleansing it and purifying himself so that God would not zap him dead. Okay? After making a sacrifice for himself, he would come back out of the Holy of Holies for a second time. He would have two goats before him. He would draw lots for which goat would get what? One of the goats would be slaughtered, and that blood would be taken into God as a payment, as an atonement, as a sacrifice. The goat's life taken in exchange for the corporate life of God's people. It's a, it's a, it's a substitute, and he would take in that blood and he would offer it to God for the sins they had committed, asking for forgiveness and mercy and grace to, from God. And then the second goat, what would they do? The priest would lay his hands on the second goat, he would commit all the sins of the people, and then they would let the goat go that was supposed to go to the wilderness of something that I forgot the name of, all right? And that's where, like, we would say it was a scapegoat, you know? Like, all of the sins of the people were laid on that goat, and it was never to what? Return. It was a visual that their sins had been taken far, what? far away. That's the Day of Atonement. Would that be a fun day to celebrate? Absolutely. Because you're reminded every day, I know I am, I am not worthy of God. I am a selfish, wretched sinner who a lot of times thinks about me before I think about we. A lot of times thinks about Jacob before I think about Jesus. And I'm reminded every day of the grace it takes to get this wretched person into the family of God. I would love the Day of Atonement. It's probably very similar to our Holy Week. Every year we have Holy Week and we're reminded what? That there's a real man who had a real cross that died on a Friday, was buried, and rose again on Sunday. And every year, don't you look forward to Easter? I do. I look forward to Resurrection Sunday. Because without that weekend, you and I are up a creek with no paddles. Amen? We're in a moral crisis because we realize how wretched we are and how holy God is. And so the scene that the author of, of Hebrews is taking us to is that day of atonement. And how the priests would have to go in. But look what he says about this Day of Atonement in verse 8. The Holy Spirit was making it clear 
that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed or revealed or made available while the first tabernacle was still standing. See, for the priest, only how many days did he go in? Not every day, not every other day. He went in how many days? And the one day he did go in, it took a lot of stuff to get him qualified to get in there. And then once he did his stuff, he got out of there. And what the Holy Spirit was letting us know was what in the Old Testament? That direct access to God was not available. See, you take this for granted because you live on this side of the cross. You take it for granted that God can accept you as a sinner because Jesus has paid for your sins on that cross. But before Jesus paid for your sins on that cross, there was not atonement. The, the direct access to God was not as available as it is today. Even the high priest could only go into the room that symbolized the presence of God. The ark was there, uh, the mercy seat was there, uh, the room would have been filled with incense. That was the representation of God. And he only allowed his people to enter it one day a year. And only one person. And what's being made known in the day of atonement is what? The presence of God is a secure place where only the most worthy and righteous people can go. And you know what the day of atonement teaches you and I? We have no business going in that room. Amen? We have no business being in the presence of God. I wouldn't want to do that. Urban legend has it they used to tie a rope around the high priest. Just in case he did die, they could drag him out. There was a reverence about God that is missing in our culture today. Did you hear that? There's a reverence about God and the Day of Atonement that's missing from our culture today. Our culture does not understand the holiness of God. Our culture thinks that you can mock God and mistreat God and speak down to God and disrespect God and that God will never hold you accountable for it. That God will never execute judgment on it. Because of God's grace, they've lost the reverence of God's holiness. But the Day of Atonement, you see it on, you know, if, if, if my kid follows me in there as the high priest, my kid may not come back out. Amen? It's, it's the reverence of God. Then look what he says in verse 9 and 10. Here's our problem. Here's our problem. This is a symbol for the present time. What he's talking about is the Day of Atonement has significance for you and I today. During which gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical reg regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings. Imposed until the time of the new order. He's saying, look, the old system had a problem. You know what the problem was of the tabernacle worship, the law, and the rituals, and the ceremonies of the Old Testament? They could only purify the external things. They could get you a purified acceptance into God's people or into the Holy of Holies, but they would never change you inwardly. So let's say you were unholy and you needed to rejoin the people of God. You could make a sacrifice and you could wash and you'd be purifully cleansed and you could go back into community with God's people. You were cleansed externally. But that cleansing externally never changed your what? Your heart. See, in the Old Testament, we see God accepting sacrifices and having ceremonies and festivals that externally cleanse His people or make them acceptable in community. But what they cannot do is perfect the worshiper's conscience. Or what I would like to say is, cannot purify the worshiper's conscience. Miranda gave me the definition of a conscience this week as we met, and she's in systematics right now. It's like that moral compass in your life that points to right and wrong. That's your conscience. The Bible says that everyone's consciousness has a bare minimum. All of us have some of God's creation in us. We all know some right and wrong. Like, everyone who steals somewhere normally feels bad about it. 
all right? Every kid who disobeys their parents, they'll never admit this, but we all as kids, deep down inside, we kind of felt what about it? Wrong. But we have a partial conscience because it's been seared by sin. It's been confused and polluted by sin. And so there's some things we can do and we never feel bad about it. You know, the poor robbing the rich, that's just everyone getting even, you know? And so what we see here is we see that the Old Testament could never, could never change the inward part of the human. But notice what it says at the end of verse, of end of verse 10. Until the time of the new what, church? The new order. See, in the Old Testament, we would have been reading Jeremiah 31 saying, one day God's going to do something better. He's going to take out this heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. One day God is going to change our insides. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and, and all of the generations, the same way we're waiting for Jesus to come back, they were waiting for God's new covenant. And when Jesus shows up at the Lord's Supper and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant he ushers in a new day a new age a new era and in this new era folks get this no longer is god's system about external cleanliness it's now about inward restoration and renewal and that's what we're going to see with the high priest but we need to make sure we 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 solidify what we see here in the old testament in the old testament on the day of atonement this is the lessons they would have walked away with no one can be in the presence of god directly our religious systems will never change our consciousness. It's just a mere acceptance externally. The high priest cannot be in the presence of God until he first cleanses himself. Even the high priest is disqualified from the presence of God without the assistance of sacrifice. And we would have seen this. Every year that day of atonement comes what? Comes back around. Every year it comes back around. And you would have started asking the question of what? Why do we always have to have the Day of Atonement? And, and our spiritual leaders would tell us what? Because the Day of Atonement is a reminder of our sins. It's not a remedy. It's not a remedy. It's a what? A reminder. What's the 4th of July? It's a reminder of our country's what? Freedom. What's Christmas? It's a reminder of our Savior's birth. All right? We have holidays too. And the Day of Atonement for them is not the remedy of sin. It's the what? Reminder. And you know what? Every time God reminds them of their sin, I bet God's people started getting impatient saying what? God, can't you just do something to get rid of this problem? Can't you just do something? See, when it comes to problems in your life, like your car, your house, there's two types of problems. There's I have to fix it now, and there's I can live with this. Okay, so my black car, my Equinox out there, it drinks a quart of oil in between oil changes. All right? That's a livable problem, amen? It's a lot easier for me to pay $3, maybe 4 nowadays, put an extra cord in than it is to get it fixed. It's a livable problem. If you come to the McMillan house, our screen door does not open from the outside. That's a livable problem. You don't know it when you drive by, but we know it because we live with it. It's a livable problem, all right? One of our ceiling lights in our living room is out. Well, guess what? It's a livable problem. But when our furnace goes out, that's not livable, amen? Amen, Jennifer? It's livable to me, all right? I will squeeze two weeks out waiting on the part to come so I can fix it, but the rest of my family say, no, this is a fix-it problem, all right? You have a water issue in your basement, that's a fix-it problem. See, what we realize about the Old Testament is, really the Old Testament religious system wasn't a fix-it, it was more of a livable system. God put it in place temporarily until he could send Jesus. And it got them by. It gave them a way to worship, 
It gave them a way to be accepted by God in terms of community and his presence. It gave them a way to understand their wretchedness and God's grace. Listen, I'm not trashing the Old Testament. The Old Testament was a great transition to Jesus. Amen? It gave them a way to be God's people before Messiah came. But understand, that's kind of like putting a quart of oil in your car. That system would have never fixed the problem. It would have never fixed the problem. But God allowed it to happen. God put it in place so that he could create a pattern. So that when we get to verse 11, it makes so much more sense who Jesus is. Look at verse 11 as we get to our second point today. We've left the setting, the scene, and the significance. Now let's get to Jesus, and I'm going to show you six ways Jesus is greater than that Old Testament narrative. Look what he says in verse 11. He says what? But Christ has appeared. Remember, we left off with uh, until this new era shows up. Remember, until the time of the new order. And the very first word after new order is what? But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. There's the answer. This was the system until one person came and changed world history. And his name is Jesus Christ. And when he came, he not only came as the ark, he not only came as a greater snake on a pole, or as the greater prophet, or as the greater judge, or the greater sacrifice. Jesus also came as the greater high priest. A high priest that would bring greater things than the high priest of the Old Testament. And let me just start pointing these out. Look at the first thing it says in verse 11. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once and for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, and these are my four favorite words of this sermon today, having obtained eternal redemption. Look at the difference here. The high priest in the Old Testament walked into a tabernacle made with human hands. Jesus is walking into a tabernacle not made with human hands. His priesthood is at a greater location. He has a greater location than the priests of the Old Testament. Not only does he have a greater location, folks, he has a greater duration. Look what it says here. He did it once and for all. Do you see that in there? Right there, verse 12. He entered the most holy place, that being in heaven, at the tabernacle in heaven, once and for all time. That's a different duration than once until next year, until next year, until next year. He did it once and for what? For all time. We don't celebrate the Day of Atonement anymore. We celebrate the cross of Jesus where he made atonement. And that's one day where he did it one time for the sins of all people of all time. You have a greater location. You have a greater duration. Look at his qualifications here. Remember the high priest in the Old Testament? He had to first kill the first animal to make himself worthy. Look what it says in verse 12. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his what? His own blood. Jesus had his own qualification, his own merits. Jesus needed no one but himself to qualify himself to be in the presence of God. See, Jesus came fully God, fully man. And as fully man, he is our high priest. He is in the lineage of Melchizedek. He serves in a position and a title that's existed with God's people from the very beginning. And as our human high priest, guess what? He could walk into the Holy of Holies in heaven, not based on anything other than his own qualifications. Isn't that amazing? Me and you would never dare to do it. Me and you would never have the audacity to think I can be in the presence of God based on my qualifications and my morality and my goodness. Folks, if you do think that way, go read Acts where he zaps two people dead for lying about stealing their property, okay? 
Go read Isaiah where he says, woe is me, as he stands before the presence of God, and they take the coal to burn and purify him. Folks, you don't understand the reverence of God if you think you can stand in his presence as a wretched sinner. But Jesus could. Because Jesus in the book of Hebrews says he was tempted in all the same ways, but yet never what? Sinned. He could. Jesus was the perfect man. He was the sinless sacrifice. Jesus could enter in to a greater location to do a sacrifice of a greater duration because he had greater qualifications. He is the great high priest. You know what Aaron did? Aaron did the Day of Atonement. You know what else Aaron did? He built a golden calf with earrings from, from Egypt. Do you think that man can stay in the presence of God? His, his friend goes, Moses goes on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and what's Aaron doing? Making an idol for God's people to worship. You see his qualifications? Not that good. And in Leviticus 16, Aaron's two sons are killed because what? They're playing fast and loose with God's holiness. So listen, the only high priest in the history of God's people that could walk into the presence of God strictly based on his own merits is Jesus. And number four, look what he has. My, my favorite part of this sermon, having obtained eternal redemption. The reason it's my favorite is think about it. The high priest qualifies himself, and then he goes out and he gets the second animal, and he, he goes into the Holy of Holies with the blood in hand in order to request redemption. He is presenting it to God and saying, here, God, we're offering you this in exchange for your forgiveness this year, okay? Notice Jesus. When he gets to the tabernacle, he is not going into the heaven and tabernacle to, to, to earn our redemption or to accomplish it. He already has it in what? He already has it in hand. Because your redemption took place on Calvary 2,000 years ago. And when that man, that sinless, perfect man, died a death he didn't deserve, and all of the sins of the world were laid on Jesus, and he bared the, and he, he bared the wrath of God, bore the wrath of God, and he took our punishment in our place, that's when your atonement, that's when the price was paid, that's when your sins were covered. When he's on that cross, and he says, it is finished. Then when he ascends 40 days later, he's walking into the Holy of Holies in heaven, already having your redemption in what? In hand. There's a big difference between buying a car with cash in hand and buying a car with a loan, amen? One takes one hour, the other takes three and a half hours. Jesus shows up to the Holy of Holies not with loan papers or negotiating. He shows up with redemption in hand. I've redeemed humanity. Atonement is finished. It is done. No more sacrifices needed. No more high priests needed. I have a greater location. My sacrifice has a greater duration. I have a greater qualification, and I have eternal redemption in my hand. Praise be to God. Amen? Praise be to God. And we would not celebrate this as much if you don't have to read the Old Testament, and every time you read, Day of Atonement, Day of Atonement, Day of Atonement, Day of Atonement. Think about how many times they celebrated that, and how many times there was a, a Calvin or an Adam saying, why doesn't God just do something? We don't got to do this every year. If he knows sin's a problem, let's deal with it. And then one day Jesus shows up and he says, what? Oh, look, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Remember our problem we had in the, earlier. Here's the solution. Look at verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify them for the purification of the flesh. So if the Old Testament can make you externally acceptable, how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, 
How much more will it cleanse our conscience our conscience from dead works so that we may serve the living God? When you hear the word how much more, think of an info commercial. First they offer you one scrub daddy, and then they say if you call in the next three minutes, we'll throw in two scrub daddies. If you can clean this many pots with one, how much more can you clean with two? And if you call in the next three minutes, free shipping and handling. And if you call the next 30 seconds, Scrub Daddy Fork Edition, yours too. That's how info commercials work, is they're saying, you get this, and how much more? You get this, and you get this, and you get this, all for one easy three payments of $20,000 every three months. You know, that's how info commercial, this is like an info commercial. He's saying this, if God could cleanse the outside of people through the blood of animals, how much more can he cleanse your rotten inside conscience, your inside morality? How much more can he do with the priceless, unblemished blood of Jesus? Look what he did in the Old Testament with a bunch of animals. Think what he can do with the blood of his son. How much more can God change his people through the blood of his son? How much more? It has a greater significance. It has a greater effectiveness than the Old Testament. It's a greater solution to the problem. I do want to point out, it says he offered himself. If you look at Hebrews 10.10 and Hebrews 10.14, it is by the body of Jesus once and for all. And it is that he, uh, by one offering, he has perfected. It's, it's by him, really 10.10 is the best one. It's by the body of Jesus once and for all. Not only is Jesus the priest, he's also the sacrifice. But that's not my sermon today, so I don't want to go there. I just want to point it out to you. It's amazing that this high priest offers himself as the sacrifice. And then I'll point out one more, and then we'll, we'll begin to wrap this thing up. Look at verse 28 of chapter 9. It says, So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting. I pointed this out because I enjoyed this in my study. Uh, it said that a lot of times when the high priest went in the second time with the sacrifice of the people, that all of God's people would stand around the tabernacle and they would wait anxiously to see if the high priest came out. Because if the high priest came out, then we're all good with who? God. If the high priest doesn't come back out, we're not good with God. So just think about once a year, if the United States or St. Joe, uh, we send in someone with a sacrifice, and for those 30 or 40 minutes he's in there, you're trying to wait and see, is God good with us or is God not good with us? And don't remember that when he's not good with us, the earth opens up and swallows people, snakes show up, and bad things happen. Do you think they were a little anxious about whether the high priest came back out? Absolutely. And when he did, what do you think they had amongst the people? They celebrated. There would have been joy. Radina would have been playing her trumpet. Jeff would have been tagging a song for the 28th time. We would be celebrating the fact that God is good with what? With us. If the high priest had that kind of anticipation, Jesus has a greater anticipation. Because when he comes back as the high priest, he's not coming back to say, you're good for one year. He's coming back to tell the church, you're good for all of eternity. Can you imagine how many people doubt Christianity? When Jesus comes riding on the clouds and the trumpet is declared, are you not going to be tickled to death? Are you not going to be celebrating and rejoicing? It's your breath in our lungs. We sing out your praise. Are you not going to be utterly joyous about the fact 
the high priest has came back out again. See, he's going to have a greater return than even the high priest had when he came out the second time. So I've shown you he had a greater location, a greater duration, a greater qualification. He offers a greater solution. There's a greater anticipation about his coming back. And there's a greater eternal redemption. See, the thing is, is that when Jesus became our high priest, it went from a livable problem to a gotta-fix-it problem. Jesus can actually fix your problem with God. Jesus, as your high priest, is not putting oil in your car in between oil changes. It's actually going and getting a new car. It's getting one that doesn't have that problem. See, Jesus isn't living with a screen door that doesn't open. It's, it's actually getting a screen door that what? That works. Jesus is a fix-it solution. Not a livable or a maintainable. It's a fix-it. You do Jesus. You get Jesus in your life. There's no other problems, again, with God. He is a one-shop one stop, stop, okay? Jesus Christ can solve your problem of your sin today. You don't need another sacrifice. You don't need another high priest. You know what you need to do? You need to admit that you have an evil conscience. You need to admit that you've rebelled against God. We all do before. And you need to admit your need of someone to intercede for you. And when you say, I need someone to intercede for me, I need someone to talk to God on my behalf, this church is going to loudly tell you that person is Jesus Christ. And guess what? He is in heaven in the tabernacle right now with your redemption already what? In hand. But you've got to believe that. You've got to trust that. You've got to claim that for yourself. You've got to actually believe that what Jesus did on that cross fixes the problem you create with your sin. In conclusion, I, I want to share... Part of my, one, of the, one of my favorite parts about doing any job around the house, that's the theme of this sermon, is when it's all done, you get to shower, you get to sit down, and then you get to showcase your work. I mean, there's nothing better about taking a shower after you mow the yard in 120 degree weather. Amen? And then you get to sit down. You shower, and then you get to sit down, and then you get to say, hey, Jennifer, you see those vertical stripes I put in the yard? Pretty nice, aren't they? Or when you change the brake pads, when it's 120 out, and you're laying on your back on hot concrete, you're sweating to death, the greatest part of that day is taking that shower and sitting down in your recliner and then telling Jennifer what? Ain't gonna squeak at the stop sign, is it? There's just something about it. There's joy about it, right? And there's plenty of things Jennifer does too. Jennifer loves it too. Jennifer will help me or she'll do a task and I'll want to talk to Jennifer and she's like, I want to shower, I want to sit down, and then I'll do a little showcasing. That's, that's the favorite part. I hope you're, if you don't do that, listen up. Here's what you do. Do a task, take a nice shower, you sit down, and then you showcase. You guys know where Jesus is today? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus ain't standing at the right hand of the Father. You know what Jesus is doing? Sitting down. Look with me in verse, chapter 8, you gotta go back a chapter. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. You can read the whole paragraph and get home. It's a good summary of the sermon. Now the main point of this, of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest, now listen to the description, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now go with me to chapter 10, bookends, chapter 10, on the other side of our chapter. Chapter 10, verse 12, literary feature here. Before and after, verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 12. But this man, being Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do, church? He sat down. Folks, the job's done. The deck's been built, you've showered, it's time to sit on your lawn chair on that deck, drink your sweet tea, and showcase what's done. 
Listen, there's no other priest coming. There's no other sacrifice that's been made or going to be made. There's no need for that. You know what time it is in the history of God's people? It's time to showcase Jesus Christ. It's time for God's church to say, Jesus is the greatest and most eternal high priest we'll ever have. Go ahead and read your Old Testament about Aaron and about none of those men stack up to Jesus Christ. Go ahead and read about the Day of Atonement. It doesn't even compare to the day on Calvary. Go ahead and read about the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It doesn't even compare to the one in heaven. Go ahead and read about their one year being right with God. It doesn't compare to the eternal being right with God. Go ahead and think about how excited they were when that high priest came out of that temple a second time. It ain't going to compare to how excited we are when Jesus comes back a second time. Because guess what? Jesus is the climax of all of human history. It's not our time to wait for God to do something. It's our time to say God has done something. For the lost person in here, it's time for you to say, God took care of my problem, now it's time for me to adopt that. It's time for me to recognize that, repent, and turn to Him. And for you saved person in here, for you Christian in this room, you need to realize that the anticipation they had of waiting should be, our part- should be matched by our participation in showcasing. You know how it is when you're getting ready to do a job at the house. We are getting ready to, to redo our basement. You get tired of the old. You get tired of the carpet. You get tired of the windows that are drafty. You get tired of the broken walls. You get tired of the marks on the walls. You know what's the greatest thing to do when it's all remodeled, it's all done? To talk about everything you used to hate about the basement. Amen? You know what the church needs to do right now? We need to talk about everything Jesus fixed and how thankful we are that he did it. Because guys, we could be getting prepared for the Day of Atonement. Seventh month, tenth day. July 10th, I'll see you out there, Day of Atonement. And guess what? We'll see the next July, and the next July, and the next July. You know what? We don't have to look forward to that. Because we have a high priest who once and for all time redeemed God's people. Can you just go ahead and help him showcase his work? Can you think about one person or one family or one neighbor that needs to hear about what Jesus Christ did? Because one of my favorite things to do, you know, Jennifer gets good data from the school district. I love to walk around and say, my wife has some of the best data in the district. I'm proud of what she's done. And I hope when Jennifer shows people my privacy fence, she says, look at that privacy fence. Bertha, it's a nice privacy fence. And you don't think our Lord and Savior is sitting in heaven saying, I just love it when my people tell, tell about me. You know, you started with the song, I'll, I'll end. I know Calvin's getting nervous. I'll end here. We sang great, great high priest. What's that song? Great and worthy king. Great and glorious king. Yeah, the very first, very first verse talks about the access to God. You guys realize today, the only reason you have access is because of Jesus Christ. Pray with me.